Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Eugene Perrier, here with Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are turning our attention to the United Kingdom, where a general election has been called for early December. We are very happy to be joined as we continue the show here by Patrick Hennessing, who's a writer, global affairs analyst, as well as the co-founder and executive editor of 21st Century Wire. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Great to be with you guys. Well, great to have you back. Now, of course, the uh, the the GE is on here. The general election is happening. Uh, I believe December twelfth is the date. Uh, you know, a lot to to play for here on a number of different levels. I mean, you know, first and foremost, maybe I'm just curious your thoughts. Uh, what this election is really going to be fought in or around? I mean, obviously Brexit is out there, but um, related to Brexit, there are a number of of other issues, healthcare, and other things that may be on the table. What do you think this election is really going to be fight uh, fought over, Patrick? Well, undeniably, this is going to be a Brexit election. That's that's absolutely going to be the most dominant issue. Now, that said, uh, the right now, if you look at sort of the way the polls are looking right now, if the election happened today, the Conservatives uh, would have a thumping majority and would probably be able to maintain control of Parliament by going into coalition with uh, the Brexit party if they're able to field uh, enough MPs. It looks like they will be. So that's that's all but certain. That's fixed. Those, those numbers are fixed. Where the margins are concerned is where it's interesting. And so where could labor gain ground? And labor could gain ground in the run-up to Christmas, not on Brexit per se. I think they've hit the wall and they've hit the glass ceiling uh, on the issue of Brexit, they can only lose support if they go too far into the second referendum and remain camp. Where Labour is going to gain uh, support in the run-up to Christmas is focusing on some of those issues which you just mentioned, like the National Health Service and all also these issues that are connected with Britain leaving the European Union. So we're talking about deregulation, we're talking about privatization, we're talking about a trade deal with the United United States. Uh, so those are all up for grabs. If labor can make those big and important enough to make voters think, ah, there's a actually a substantial difference here between what labor a government will be offering and what the Tories are already offering, which is a pretty much an open book by this point, including previous conservative administrations, then they can gain ground in the polls. Then they can change the current polling, and they could change the odds and tighten up this race going into the general election in December. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important point. I mean, I I was saying about this yesterday. I mean, it seems to me that uh, perhaps the best campaigning position for labor is is exactly what you say, which is, you know, certainly akin to what Jeremy Corbyn was saying during the campaign around the referendum, which is, you know, that many of the things people are the most upset about, the privatizations, the, you know, hollowing out of NHS and so on and so forth, aren't even necessarily related to the EU, but related to the political leadership of uh, the United Kingdom that's committed to austerity. And that to some degree, it seems like maybe labor's best bet is to kind of present themselves sort of a no matter what happens kind of situation where your best bet. Sure. Yeah. There's a thing they call here, uh, the term they use is project, <laughs> project fear. They've been using in terms of where the remain camp has been wanting to take the conversation in terms of you know the gloom and doom prophecies of what will happen if Britain leaves the EU, but worse, what will happen if Britain leaves the EU without a deal? So that kind of no deal crashing out of the European Union 
on October 31st. That was sort of the big uh, feature of Project Fear in the run-up to sort of this phase where we're at right now. Now that an extension has been agreed, now that a general election uh, has been called and there's a date, now Pro Project Fear doesn't have the same amount of urgency, let's say, as it might have had in the last couple of months. But yet, in the run-up to Christmas, economic issues are going to become even more emotive. Financial issues become more emotive. People become more conscious of their financial situation in the holiday period, and it becomes a very emotional issue. So I think what they call Project Fear on the the, the Remain side, or what the Brexiteers call the Remain uh, campaigning on economic uh, issues and so forth, that's also going to feature hugely. And if you look at the headlines this, only this morning, just as the election was announced, headline story running across a number of media outlets is Britain's going to be in a 70 billion pound hole as a result of leaving the EU. It's going to hurt the economy to that degree. Whether that's true or not, it is is buying the buy. What matters is whether these talking points, whether these ideas are going to get traction in the run-up to Christmas. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe for our listeners here who don't know as much, what you're expecting the Tories to to put uh, on offer here for the election? I mean, quite frankly, some of the things they've already been saying sound a little bit like Jeremy Corbyn, uh, honestly, but uh, obviously tied very much to the idea of going through and pushing through Brexit. I mean, do you think that will be the, the centerpiece of, of what they sort of try to do here is sort of a, a mix of, yes, we're going to push through Brexit, but in the context of the quote unquote, take back control narrative that, you know, we also are going to, you know, address some of the issues. I think it was uh, uh, Mr. Javid actually said in parliament to turn the page on austerity. Yeah, I mean, they can make those they can make those kind of promises, but they're, they're generally not very credible when they're coming from the conservative side of the bench. Uh, when you have an anti austerity message uh, coming from, like, say, Boris Johnson, it's not going to be very credible to a lot of people. It, it will it'll be fine for keeping the like say the labor oriented Brexit type people. They might they might respond to that a little bit in the in the sense of oh a Tory government's not going to be that bad. It's not going to be as bad as we thought it would be, and we still want Brexit more than we do like say serious repealing back of austerity policies because the Brexit issue is that divisive especially amongst the working class, especially in the northern constituencies, former labor strongholds, which they're fighting to keep hold of. Uh, so that, that will play, that, that will play. But I don't think it's going to play as much as the, uh, uh, the minutia of what's in the deal. I think the deal itself is going to be picked apart as well. People are going to be inspecting every nook and cranny of this deal because the election is the second referendum. It's going to be treated as a second referendum this coming election. So that includes Boris's deal. That's also on the table for the election. It's going to be a referendum on Boris Johnson, his deal, and Brexit. Full stop. That's how this election will be framed, I think, in, in the main. You know, I'm curious what you think about the way Scotland could play, which seems like it could be a bit of a wild card here. I mean, obviously, Scottish Labour and uh, Mr. Leonard there will be pushing aggressively in the anti-austerity message. Uh, they're very much in the Corbynite camp there. Obviously, the SNP, who also has, you know, to some degree an anti-austerity message, I think will be, you know, petitioning people in Scotland, many of whom, I think the vast majority of whom voted for Remain. Well, if you want to make sure, and in the spirit of what you're saying, this would be the second uh, amendment sort of aspect of it, if you want to make sure there's a either no Brexit or a, you know, very whatever deal, send back the strongest possible SNP, you know, delegation there to 
Parliament. Uh, so it seems like some interesting ground uh, there in Scotland in terms of how this will be contested, I think, mainly between the SNP and Labour, you know, and obviously with the, the Tory leader there in Scotland uh, quitting, they may not be able to really hold themselves up in, in any way, not that they're huge there in any way, but nevertheless, they've been able to gain a little bit on unionist politics, but it does seem like it'll be mainly a Labour SNP affair there, but that could be a real wild card, especially for Corbyn. Well, uh, if you look at the numbers, just look at the polling numbers right now. As if the election happened today, you're looking at uh, conservative, roughly 35 percent, let's say uh, labor around 25. Conservatives will need Brexit party candidates at around 11 percent of of seats. That's going to put them up at uh, 46 percent. Now, labor, if they're able to string together a coalition of labor, liberal Democrat and SNP, that would be the trifecta coalition that would give the edge in a hung parliament. If you look at the odds right now, and the, the British bookies are absolutely the best source of political intelligence and data in this country. And if you ever have a question of what the result is going to be for any piece of legislation or anything like this, go to the odds makers. The British bookies will have absolutely up to the minute accurate probability specs on a lot of this. And right now the bookies are giving a pretty decent odds on a hung parliament. And I think if it depends on where the media is going to go and how how much the media uh, talking points will gain traction in terms of the public opinion in, in favor of labor or not going up to Christmas, those odds might well shorten. And it, as you said, if Scotland becomes a bigger factor uh, in this and it looks like there's a, a peace treaty uh, between labor and the liberal Democrats, then you, you know all bets are off at that point. You could have a hung problem. You could have a... a a coalition uh, race uh, to form a government. Now, the wild card there, of course, would be the DUP at that point, the Democratic uh, Unionist Party in Northern Ireland. Uh, and they've shunned uh, this deal by Boris Johnson and effectively shattered the coalition that, uh, as flimsy coalition as it was that Theresa May uh, had stitched together in the last general election that have allowed the Tories to be in power now. That is not guaranteed at all. In fact, uh, they don't have the support of the DUP at the moment. So there's a lot of pieces, there's a lot of pieces up in the air right now that make it, to me, it looks like actually a dead heat. Uh, in the run-up to Christmas. I, I don't see, unless Labour and the Liberal Democrats can't resolve their differences and come together, then, yeah, Johnson has a massive majority. But if they can put together that coalition with the SNP, Labour, they're in for a chance, actually. Yeah, no, I, I, I tend to agree with you, and I'm glad you brought up the Lib Dems. I mean, I'm curious your thoughts about their positioning here. I mean, I think they obviously think they will do very well because, you know, they'll be basically the Remain party. I guess the Green Party will be out there with them, but they'll be like kind of the Remain party. But, you know, for what it's worth, the last time the Lib Dems were in, in government, it delivered David Cameron, who held the referendum, and they not only did that, they violated you know, the vast majority of their major election promises going into that coalition. So, I mean, I have to say I'm, I'm relatively skeptical. I mean, I know a lot of people feel they'll do well purely because of the Remain issue, but I, I it seems to me, I don't know, this is just my, my sort of gut reaction here, is that they'll get kind of squeezed out a little bit as the election campaigning itself starts. Yeah, there, there's a, there, their problem, I think, the, the Liberal Democrats' problem is a personality problem. And uh, their current leader is you know, regarded as unsavory character to a lot of people in British politics, but worse in, in the British press as well. So she's not exactly the favorite 
of, uh, of the press and the political establishment. So you also have the Blairite uh, MPs that defected from the Labor Party, and you know they're pretty much persona non grata. I mean, some of them might be lucky to hold on to their seats uh, in the general election. So you might see some people stand down, uh, well, at least some of the older candidates. And uh, on the conservative side, Amber Rudd has announced that she's not going to be standing because they withdrew the whip for her and some of the other rebels. They haven't returned it for Rudd. She's not going to stand. By the way, her husband is in charge of the Remain second referendum campaign. So that was a big conflict of interest that she would have had trouble with in an election. But Kenneth Clark, the senior, the father of the house, as it were, uh, he was retiring. So he's not coming back. There's a number of other people who might not be returning to their seats. So there are quite a few seats up for grabs there. I don't think the Liberal Democrats will, they're literally running on a Remain platform. And I actually think they alienated a percentage of their constituency by doing that. Labor faces the same issues, by the way, with their sort of remain camp led by Keir Starmer uh, and others. They Alienating working class voters who are pro-Brexit is a big, big issue with both of those parties. Yeah, no, I, I think that certainly, uh, you know, there's a, a, a lot of, seems like there's just a lot of wild cards uh, up in the air about this one. I mean, I tend to agree with you that it has kind of a, a dead heat aspect to it in the way that it it, it plays. I mean, you know, it, it just seems that there are a lot of subsidiary issues that result on this too. I mean, the ripple effects in Ireland seem like they could be, you know, quite significant. I see that uh, Sinn Féin already has... Uh, billboards up and has for a couple months now saying one way to resolve the backstop issue, uh, unite Ireland. Uh, obviously, I mean, you know, the the unionist forces will not love that, but they're in a tough position too. I mean, as you said, they've broken up the coalition with Johnson. They don't like this new agreement and the whole issue of the backstop. And it does seem like that's sort of a, a you know, major potential uh, also place for for, you know, real eddies and currents to emerge here in the wake of this election based on how it turns out. Oh, absolutely. You touched on a really important point there. One of them is is Ireland, the Irish issue. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, you know Sinn Fein for for years uh, used to be, I would say, anti EU because it sort of fit the anti imperialist agenda that that they have, the sort of global, outward looking internationalist agenda that they once had. But because of Brexit, it's become a sectarian issue. And clearly the unionists in the North are more or less pro-Brexit along those lines, whereas Sinn Féin's now pro-EU, but not overtly pro-EU as as one might think. But the the unification of Ireland, while it has been hurt, that effort uh, by Brexit in terms of dividing Northerners and Southerners along sectarian lines, along leave or remain for the North, it's actually unveiled some geographical realities about the Ireland itself. You know, it, there wouldn't have been a Good Friday Agreement, many will argue, if both countries weren't EU members. Uh, it just would have been very hard to resolve, but because both Britain and the Republic of Ireland were members of the EU at that time, it, it did help to make, logistically anyway, make that uh, issue easier in terms of the soft border issue. That's become a real issue of contention with the backstop issue between getting a deal done, Northern Ireland's kind of dragging their heels, standing in the way there. But it, it just it begs the question, is Ireland just better suited to be united? That's becoming a re- real conversation now, and not for a political reason, but just out of practicality. The, the danger for Britain is 
Brexit will most surely trigger, a lot of people believe, I think so too, a Scottish referendum for independence. So you could have a situation, not immediately, but a few years after Brexit, where the United Kingdom could half itself in size. You could lose Scotland and lose uh, Northern Ireland, and then it's, it's England and Wales that's the United Kingdom, and they might have to add Cornwall to make it look bigger. I don't know, but it's going to be – it's a bit of an issue there. A lot of people aren't seeing that, but it, that's an existential issue for the United Kingdom. And people aren't talking about – I think people are afraid to actually even think about that. No, I think it's true. I mean, I, I think people are afraid to think about it and the consequences of it. I mean, obviously, there's echoes in, in Catalonia of the exact situation and, and, you know, not for nothing. The S&P parliamentary delegation there, the day of the – verdict there on the the Catalan uh, individuals there in the Spanish courts they all wore yellow ties and solidarity inside of uh inside of the UK parliament and have been one of the sort of strongest uh advocates in the sort of broader European scene so i mean i think obviously people are afraid to broach it because it seems that many of the kind of you know seemingly forever realities of how some of these european countries uh, we're set up, starting to fall apart. And it seems to me to speak, Patrick, a little bit more to the this sort of broader crisis here amongst many of these liberal democracies and the ripple effects of the austerity policies and, quite frankly, the blowback from some of the international policies they pursued over the past 40 years. Yeah, I mean, we, we live in a very interesting time right now with so many concurrent protests, uh, political uprising, this political unrest. Uh, you mentioned Catalonia and Europe. Brexit is a is a type of a form of this, but uh, in, a, in a different format. But uh, we have you know Lebanon and right across uh, the continent of South America and Hong Kong as well. And that's just to name a few. There's there's so many, and I think all of these things have different attributes. Uh, there's different reasons why things are happening in those countries, but there are some commonalities. Uh, one of them, certainly for Europe, is is austerity. Outside of Europe, it's neoliberal economics enforced austerity on countries that have had to sign up to kind of debt regimes internationally. But in Europe, that would be kind of classed as austerity, even though the European countries are facing very, very similar issues that are being uh, faced in the so-called developing world, uh, in that there's uh, high levels of unemployment, uh, there's uh, contracted economic growth, increased personal debt, increased national debt. These are all issues that are facing even European Union countries, particularly in the south of the European Union. And then we have this systematic problem in Europe of segregation between what they would call the rich north and the poor south. And that's a problem that's not going away. They can't create jobs out of nowhere. And if you're going to pay people not to work because you don't have jobs for under 25s uh, to have full employment, that's going to cost money too. Where's that money coming from? Is it coming from Brussels or wherever? Is it coming from the IMF? I don't know. At, at what point does the developed world start to take on the same sources of debt that the developing world take on from multilateral financial institutions? And if we go in that direction, who knows? You know. But Greece certainly is a country that was in that category, as was Cyprus and Iceland as well, uh, who suffered after the last financial crash. So what would happen if there was another financial crash in the next couple of years? Uh, it could be devastating, looking at the structural deficiencies we see right now in the so-called developed world. Well, we're going to have to leave it there now. for now. Patrick, really appreciate you joining us here on the show. We're going to take a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back. Stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. 